I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Jason Timbuktu Diakite on his brilliant new memoir, A Drop of Midnight. Jason Timbuktu Diakite is one of Sweden's most well-known hip-hop artists. He was born in Lund to American parents, an African-American dad and a white mum and has released eight solo albums and numerous singles, the majority of which have reached gold or platinum status. His accolades include eight Swedish Grammy Awards, and he's performed all over the world, from Africa to Svalbard, from the Apollo in New York City to the Roxy in Los Angeles, and at the Polar Music Prize and the Nobel Peace Prize Award Ceremony. Jason is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, A Drop of Midnight, which is what we're going to be talking about today, which has already sold more than 100,000 copies in Sweden. Jason, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much, Neil. Happy to be here. First of all, then, I want to talk about how you ended up in Sweden. As I said in the intro, both of your parents were American. So how did you get there? Yeah, they actually moved to Sweden in 1969. My dad, who was born in Harlem, did not have a university education at the time that he and my mom met and got married. My mom had already gone to uh, college. Her middle-class parents had saved up and made sure that she and her three siblings had uh, college funds. My dad, coming from the background that he did, did not have that opportunity in life and wanted beyond anything to A, get out of Harlem and B, get a university education and managed to find out that in Sweden, he could actually study for free. So they moved here in 69 with the intention of just staying for a few years while he got his education, but got stuck here. And I was born in Lund, Sweden, uh, in the south of Sweden in 1975. And indeed, they they both have stayed in Sweden ever since. Mm, They have. Yeah, they have. So how did they meet? They met. Actually, my mom was a social worker. And uh, I write about it a bit in the book, or I write about how they met in my book. Uh, the moment they meet, you write about it. It's a great story. The, yeah, the, the moment they meet, it was, my mom was a social worker, and this is 1966. And she was a, um, well, a young white girl. And, and this is, you know, mid-60s, uh, towards the end of the civil rights movement, but also in the middle of the anti-Vietnam movement. And of course... There was a level of contention in American society then, not that there's any less now, but it was just, I imagine it not being very easy for her to 
maneuver in the neighborhoods where she worked, you know, which were East New York, Bed-Stuy, predominantly uh, African-American and poorer neighborhoods. Anyway, she had she was looking for a runaway girl who was apparently living in a hallway in Harlem. And uh, she'd found out that some of the people living in the building had taken this girl in. And she knocked on that door. And that was the door of my aunt's apartment. And my dad was visiting. And he answered the door. And they, they met and apparently, you know, took a liking to each other. I think he hit on her and asked her out pretty much on the bat, you know. So from the perspective of the UK, we think of Sweden as a sort of, you know, liberal social democratic paradise, but also somewhere that's quite small population, quite insular. Um, mm. So tell us something about what your experience was like going to school in Sweden. Sweden really was during the 70s, but during the 80s, I'd say the, the 80s were probably the last decade of this uh, social democratic utopia that Sweden is still known for in a lot of places in the world and to some extent still sees itself as. But Sweden was also a very culturally homogenous society, i.e. its kind of self-imagery was very much of what is typical Swedish. And that typical Swedishness is very closely associated to whiteness, even though that's not, that's often not explicit. So Sweden of the 80s, when I went to school, the 80s and the 90s, really believed that it was a post-racial society. But I think that's mostly an effect of there being so little representation of people from other cultures in the public sphere of Sweden, in public life of Sweden. So growing up as a person of color, growing up as a biracial child in Sweden was very much an experience of being othered as we say, as being seen as foreign and realizing that from a young age, it kind of instilled in me that the sense that even though I'm born in this country, I'm not of this country. That was a process then after I started realizing that at the age of seven, eight, nine, and starting to really understand that, I started internalizing that process. And I think that is still in me and will be. I have this very kind of... Uh, ambivalent relationship to Sweden. It is the country that I'm born in, but I, I still hesitate to say that it is my home country. And at the same time, my parents were American in there. Uh, they got divorced when I was only one. So I, I would spend time, I'd alternate between living with my mom and my dad every other week. And in both their homes, American culture was very prevalent. We'd celebrate Halloween and Thanksgiving and, and English was spoken and kind of uh, American customs and culture were, were the routine. And we'd, uh, we'd frequently visit the United States at least once a year, sometimes twice a year and spend Christmases and summers there and so forth. But I, I also realized that when I was in the States, I felt very, very Swedish. But at the same time, then in the country where I was born, Sweden, I often felt very much like something other than Swedish. And I think that's the basis of me want, needing to write this book. Well, your father as well. Your father was born in America. He's an American. But then mm. at a certain point in his childhood, so your father's name is Madabuku, which wasn't the name he was born with. It's a name that he was given yeah. by his mm -hmm. very Pan-Africanist grandmother, who, when he's a young lad, 
sends him and his siblings to Nigeria to basically become, to, to get rid of their Americanness fundamentally. Mm-hmm. So tell us about his experience there. So it was my grandmother, so it was actually his mother. And so my grandmother, my dad's mom, she divorced my grandfather in the early 40s. They had had two children together, and then she quickly remarried, uh, had two more children, but her second husband passed away. By 1949, she was on her third husband, had four kids, was still quite young. I think she was all but 26 or 27 at the time. So she had kids very young. And her third husband was a Nigerian journalist and politician. So she was intent on sending her children to live in Africa. She didn't believe that Black people in America had a chance for a a just and and, uh, opportune life. And she believed that if she left her children to grow up in Harlem, that either the streets would get them or the law would get them or they would just not be given any opportunities to build a better life. So she did something very unmotherly, but also that looking back, I see as as a crossroads in my family history. She sent her four children to live in Nigeria. She was the third wife of this man. So and she didn't accompany the children. So they grew up in a small village in in Enugu. Uh, or a small town, I should say, a, a town in, in Igbo land in Nigeria. And, stay, and my father lived there for seven years, but the two other siblings whose father had passed away, they stayed on there for almost the duration of their lives. And she also, in the, in the process, decided that her children would not carry their slave names. My dad was born Warren Robinson, but she changed their surnames to Diakite, and my dad was given the name Matabuko as his first name. And um, she really meant her Pan-Africanism. So in my family's narrative, my grandmother has always been talked about as a bad parent, as an unmotherly mother. But at the same time, her actually having sent my dad and my uh, uncle and my aunt's to live in Nigeria opened up something new in them. And when my dad and one of my aunts returned to the United States, to New York City in 1957, something had in fact changed in my father. And I think that's what enabled him to seek out, ultimately find and have the courage to actually leave Harlem, to go to this small town in this small country to study. You know, Looking at my father's friends and other relatives, in Harlem and in in the States, they to this day can't understand why my dad would go to this country that they barely know where it is. But I think it gave my dad and his siblings a sense of, well, internationalism, seeing what it was like living in another culture, even though they were severely mistreated while living in Nigeria. So it was definitely traumatizing, but also there was something positive that came out of it. And I think that's why my dad ultimately decided or had the courage to decide to migrate to Sweden. Just going back to you growing up in Sweden, when do you first discover hip hop? At the age of 14, I would say I, my first encounter was with hip hop was when my dad came back from a trip to the States in 1984. And he brought with him a Melly Mel 12 inch single with the track Jesse. And that was a song that Melly Mel wrote to support Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign at the time. So that was my first encounter with hearing rap music. Uh, I was nine at the time. But when I was 14, 
my cousin from New York City uh, had moved to Sweden to live with us. And he brought with him a whole slew of hip hop tapes, you know, Jungle Brothers, Eric B and Rakim, Ella Cool J. And I was, it was the perfect age for me to fall head over heels and in love with hip hop music, hip hop culture, the way of dressing, uh, speaking. I just went all in to the culture. And which of those artists do you think have been the most influence on your own work? Well, I mean, initially, I mean, I started out my, I, I will say that briefly after having really fallen in love with, with hip hop culture, I started writing my own lyrics. And I think for the first good years, you know, two, maybe three years, I spent trying to emulate my favorite artists and my favorite artists at the time were, of course, Tribe Called Quest, but also uh, Boogie Down Productions and KRS-One to name two groups that were really influential. But it's, hey, I mean, that's also how you how you learn something. I, I learned by emulating, imitating, and trying to sound like like these masters uh, until, you know, maturing, growing, uh, my pen getting sharper and learning how to develop my own style and voice. But in general, looking at hip hop culture, it's interesting how, I mean, and for obvious reasons that the culture is born in New York City, but it emanates from the United States, but at the same time has become a part of a pillar of global pop culture. But it is very much a franchise culture. So in in you know Dutch hip hop or French hip hop or Ethiopian hip hop or Vietnamese hip hop, you will hear where the artists are, who they're being influenced by in American hip hop, you know, still being the beating heart of hip hop culture. The one exception I will say is British hip hop, which is uh, since I can remember always had this very original way of interpreting and creating hip hop, you know. But that's that's kind of a that's a sidebar. But uh, you know, then during my life, I've been influenced by so many different artists. You know, from ranging from Tribal Quest and BDP to obviously in later years to you know the voice and writing of someone like Kendrick Lamar, and in the mid '90s, of course, of Nas, this this very literary style of rap music, and Nas being almost you know like these kind of novels from the projects painting these pictures of places I'd never been to physically, but could see by listening to the music and taught me about storytelling and how one can use rap music uh, as a vehicle. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jason Diakite and we're talking about his memoir, A Drop of Midnight. And Jason, in the book, you embark on a number of travels to places from your family's past. First of all, I'd like to talk about your trip to South Carolina, which is where your your grandfather, your father's father, escaped from fundamentally to end up in Harlem Um, and you travel to a a, a small place called Allendale in South Carolina. I'm familiar with South Carolina myself. My mother-in-law lives there. Oh wow. My mother-in-law lives there in a a nice gated community and all of that. So this place Allendale that you visit is very different. Mm, It is. It was was really something else, Neil, to see this part. I mean, like I said before, I've visited the United States and I've lived in the United States off and on during the course of my life. But that's been the coastal cities. My mom's family is from the newly world famous city of Scranton, Pennsylvania. But prior to the to the U.S. version of the office, nobody had ever heard of Scranton, Pennsylvania. And uh, and of course, after this past presidential election, everybody, at least in the United States, knows where or a lot of people know where Scranton is. But having said all that, I was not at all prepared for what I saw when visiting the inland of South Carolina. Of course, my grandfather was born there in 1907. And I understand at the time, you know, this is right at the kind of at the the beginning of the Jim Crow era, I would say, or, you know, just a small way into the Jim Crow era. But agriculture was still booming in this part of the United States. When I arrived there in 2015, every other building was burnt out and abandoned. The population is still, I think, 80% plus African-American, 40% live under the poverty line. It was just such a visible, hopelessness was so visible in the absence of investment in the infrastructure, potholes, uh, trees growing through sidewalks, these they have these two giant uh, agricultural grain silos and it's smack dab in the middle of this little town that has about I think a 17,000 population. And these silos are totally cracked and crumbled at their bases, you know, which to me was like these gigantic structures could fall over at any moment, uh, boarded up shops along the main street. And most powerful of all was the very uh, existence of the cotton fields, driving into Allendale, crossing, you know, driving through the woods and crossing the fields, all, all of a sudden we're in the middle of this, you know, on both sides of the road, there's this, there's just cotton as far as the eye can see in both directions. 
And I, it hadn't struck me that cotton was still cultivated in the American South and in South Carolina, but there it was. I asked the driver to stop the car because I just had to, I didn't know why, I just had to get out of the car and take it in. And I walked through the ditch into the field and, and started just instinctively picking. I just wanted to feel what it was like to do what my grandfather's, all of his aunts and uncles and his grandparents and, and his cousins and he himself, they all picked cotton. They were sharecroppers, uh, which was an existence not dissimilar to slavery and in a sense almost worse than slavery because their physical security was a lot more threatened. You know, slave owners would rarely lynch and kill what in essence was their property. Whereas during Jim Crow and when, when African-Americans were sharecroppers, they would readily be killed to instill fear and um, uh, obedience. So yeah, there, it was just revelatory that I don't know exactly what I was expecting to find when I traveled to Allendale. You know, my, my motive was to go there and see if I could find any relatives or any traces of my grandfather. Of course, you know, my grandfather was born Solomon Robinson. Robinson's a very generic name. There were literally hundreds of Robinsons there. Uh, I searched through the old graveyards from the time of that were around when my grandfather's grandfather was most likely born. I didn't find any of those traces that I initially set out to were the initial reason for me to go. But what I found instead was just this revelation of gratefulness, gratitude to the fact that he, and he was only 13, my grandfather, when he left Allendale, this deep, deep gratitude that he actually had the courage to leave this place at such a young age, which then enables kind of the rest of my, my line, you know, had he not done that, my father and myself and all the rest of our family and my cousins would not have existed, definitely not in the way that we exist today. And so mm. he, as I said, escapes fundamentally to Harlem, a place that mm. at the time is, you know, the Harlem of the Harlem Renaissance, a place that's subsequently undergone, you know, various trials and tribulations through the 70s and 80s of the sort of heroin and crack epidemics. And now mm. is a place that is is under threat from the community, is under threat from mm. rapid mm. gentrification. So how did you find Harlem? I know there was like, between yourself and your father, your father was not keen on you traveling to the States, particularly to South Carolina, because he, you know, because he'd had some bad experiences there. But also there's clearly ghosts to be found in places like Harlem mm. as well. Well, I, I realized, I mean, my father and I have been to, you know, Harlem, like, like I said, we'd go every summer and we'd go visit relatives. And I remember when we used to go in the 80s, I remember the, the empty lots and the burnt out buildings. And I remember the fact that we could never go out after dark and people talked about muggings and you had to watch out to get robbed so you didn't get robbed and, and these things. And of course, in my, you know, in my teenage years, I thought all that was was very exciting. And of course, this was the, you know, especially in the early 90s, New York City was the mecca of hip hop culture. Literally 98% of the best hip hop music was coming from that city, you know. So I would find it exciting. Now, today, you know, I'm sure I could get my dad to go back to New York. But when in 2015, when I was trying to convince him that we should go to South Carolina, that we should go together to the birthplace of my grandfather, his dad, 
he refused. And I couldn't understand his refusal at the time. Having written the book and really kind of lived inside the story and gotten so close to it while during the course of the time it took me to write it, I think I came to understand the fact that I was born into a lot more privilege than my father was. And I can kind of emotionally afford to kind of go on an expedition or go on this tourism in the past and these memories that for my dad, you know, my dad was born into poverty. He was, you know, he was one generation closer to Jim Crow, to slavery. You know, my dad literally had, oh, he had one aunt who was actually born during slavery. So he was, you know, he was very much closer to that, the pain and the suffering. And me being born in Sweden several years later in a land with free healthcare, free education, and I've never known, you know, hunger, or I've never known the feeling of not knowing where my next meal or my next ability to pay, well, my pay my rent, I've definitely had trouble with in my life. But I've never known true poverty the way my, my father has. So for him, it was just I think what frightened him about going back was that these memories would have some sort of a Medusa effect or that he would turn into a pillar of salt if he went back and saw these, the cotton fields and the poverty and the, the land of his forebears and his ancestors. And also to see that so little has changed and not only has so little changed, in some aspects, it's actually worse than it was in the early 1920s when my grandfather left. Well, we're recording this just a couple of weeks after the election, although, of course, not everybody agrees with the result. But, um, you know, thank God that whole nightmare is over. But in the book, both your father and his friend Don and your uncle Obi all have yeah. what I think are some of the most interesting arguments I've ever heard in <laughs> favour of Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, why? Well, so essentially, there are two different types of arguments. So my, my, uh, my dad's friend, Don, he was pro-Trump because he figured that Donald Trump is very open with his white supremacy. You know, him being a white supremacist president is nothing new to the United States. There have been previous presidents who were also white supremacists. But this man is too uh, basically unintelligent to hide it or to convolute it and that basically under his watch, the country will crash and burn down once and for all. And then maybe it can be rebuilt into something better. So that's essentially my dad's friend Don's perspective. My uncle, uh, my uncle Obadike, he, he was a Democrat all his life. He lives in Baltimore. Baltimore that, as you know from The Wire, is a city that has a lot of problems. A lot of homelessness, a lot of addiction, a lot of crime, a lot, a lot of visible poverty. And it literally looks like it does in The Wire. My uncle is also a veteran. And he said, you know, I've been a Democrat all my life. My city has been run by Democrats as long as I can remember. And nothing has changed. Nothing is getting better. And the Democrats are never going to, you know, they're never going to change. And he chose to <laughs> hitch his horse to to this so-called businessman who said he was going to drain the swamp and who wasn't a career politician. And he kind of took the blue pill and went all in. And uh, we still can't really, uh, it's impossible to have a phone conversation with my uncle. It has been for a few months. And now too, he's very belligerent about what's going on. And it's really no point. We have to wait for all this to kind of land. But I still love my uncle and I can see his, uh, his loss of faith in the Democratic Party, 
that I can approach and understand that he feels. At the same time, I can't really understand that he would put his hopes in in, in someone like uh, the 45th president and uh, hopefully soon to be uh, ex-president. Just one more thing then. So throughout the book, there is this theme of, of identity, whether that's yourself growing up mixed race in Sweden or your parents' mixed marriage and the, the sort of troubles that cause it to different extent with either of their families. Um, your father torn between America and Sweden and America and Nigeria and yourself between America and Sweden. And I wonder, having written the book, are you, where are you now? Are you, have you found some sort of peace through doing it? I think I have found some sort of peace after having written the book in that my version and what I believe to be a a reasonable version of events and people and emotions is at least committed to paper. So it's kind of there for posterity. Essentially, the book is an attempt to somehow draw a map over uh, over my roots, over my uh, my family's roots. So that now exists for my daughter and my hopefully future grandchildren and my cousins' kids and their kids. You know, so some form of closure I think I reached by writing the book. At the same time, the discussion of identity, the discussion of structural oppression is such a burning question on the minds of both Europeans and Americans today that I I still haven't left that sphere of thinking. And it still kind of influences a lot of the music that I write today and op-eds and other work that I do. And I think a part of me will always write along this theme of identity because it's something that has been so, it's had such a direct effect on myself and my family for as far back as I've been able to find out information. So hopefully that will change in the next generation or the generation after that. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm sure most of what I create from now on will, uh, and have created for the past two decades has been more or less along these lines. So the answer is both yes and no. So I've been talking to Jason Diakite about his memoir, A Drop of Midnight, which I should also say is, um, I'm reading the translated version, translated by Rachel Wilson-Broyles. And it's out in the UK from Amazon Crossing. And before we finish, I also want to mention Jason's fantastic podcast, This Moment, which he he co-hosts with um, the chef, Marcus Samuelson. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to share the book with us. Neil, man, thanks so much for having me on. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.